have all of the important people come down to the front at this time. If you are in fifth grade or younger, we invite you down for our children's chat before you go to Hope for Kids. Good morning. Thank you. Always makes my day. Awesome. All right. Prayer requests. See that? Good girl. Thank you. So how are y'all doing? All right. You ready to go trick-or-treating? Yes. What's the best part of trick-or-treating? The candy or the costumes? The costumes. The girls say costumes. Seeing people in their costumes. All right. What are we going to be? What are we going to be this year? Do we know yet? Puppies? A pig? Well, you're going to be the cutest pig on the block. I guarantee it. Love it. Caden, what are you going to be? You don't know yet? What? Say that again. You're going to be military. Okay. Well, around here, you need to pick a branch. Mila, what are you going to be for Halloween? A princess? You're already a princess. That'll be easy. All right. Okay. So, I want to read you a Bible verse, and then I'm going to have you repeat it, and then we're going to talk about what it means. All right? Here's the verse. You're going to have to say this, so pay attention. You ready? There is, therefore, now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. You ready? Just repeat after me. There is, therefore, now... Try that again. There is therefore now, is therefore now, no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. All right. There, there is therefore now, no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Good job. All right. So, now that you can say it, what does it mean? What does it mean that there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus? Have you ever gotten in trouble? Maybe. Maybe a little bit. Yes, right? So, we all commit sins. We all get in trouble. We all do bad things from time to time. Not, you know... We don't want to do them all the time, but they happen, right? Bad things happen. And how do you feel after you do something wrong and you get caught doing something wrong? You feel sad. You feel ashamed. You feel bad, right? Hopefully. And so what does God want you to feel when you admit to him that you did something bad? When you say, Lord, I did something wrong. 
what does he want you to know and what does he want you to feel? He wants you to know that there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, right? What does that mean? What does God want you to know when you do something bad and you tell him, I'm sorry, what does he want you to know? That he has taken away our sins. He has, that's called forgiveness, right? He has forgiven us of our sins, and therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. All right. Any questions? Okay. So God wants you to know that he loves you, that you are forgiven, and he wants you to do the right thing. He wants you to do good things, but he also wants you to know when you do bad things, you just tell him, I'm sorry, I did something bad, I did something wrong, and he wants you to know that he loves you and he forgives you. How's that? Is that pretty awesome? All right. Let's pray. Dear God, thank you for these beautiful children, for the gift that they are to our church and to our lives. We pray your blessing over them as they study more of your word and hope for kids today. Fill them with your Holy Spirit and lead them into a deeper understanding of how much you love them. Remind them that they are your children, that you love them, and that they are forgiven, and that there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Y'all have a great time and hope for kids. That's what I sound like if Kathy doesn't feed me. Pretty much the same. All right. Will you join me in prayer as we prepare our hearts for God's word this morning? God, our loving Father, uh, as we open your word, we ask that you would open our hearts today. That you would reveal to us those sins that need to be confessed, those hopes that need to be taken to you in faith, those problems, those situations that are in need of your intervention. Lord, read our hearts as we read your word. Speak to us this morning. We lay at the foot of your cross the burdens of our hearts that we might be more free to encounter you here through your word today. We lift before you any relationships in our lives that are strained. We pray for your peace and reconciliation where it is needed. We lift to you those whom we know and love who are sick or facing uncertain diagnoses, and we pray your healing mercies over them. We lift up Yolanda Clifton this week and uh, Lori Branson as they both approach surgeries, and we just pray that those would be Uh, part of your healing work for their bodies. And we just pray your healing over them. We lift up all of those who grieve, and we pray that you would comfort them. We lift before you our nation and its leaders at every level of government, elected and appointed, and we pray that you would give wisdom and discernment to the decisions that are before them. And Lord, we lift up our men and women in uniform 
We pray that you would watch over and protect them. We pray especially for those who are in harm's way. We ask that you would bring them home safely. And Lord, we lift up those who've returned home from their service changed as a result of the sacrifices they've made for our freedoms. And we pray that you would pour out your healing upon them, mind, body, and soul. Lord, use us, your church, to grow your kingdom, extend your grace, share your love here in this dark and hurting world. We lift up your church here at Hope around the world today as people gather to worship you. May your word go forth from the mouths of your people and may it not return to you empty. We lift to you those churches to whom we are connected uh, through our denomination and through our missions giving. Uh, We think of Paul and Elizabeth Branch in Guatemala, John and Diane Davis in Laredo, Texas, Pastor Miguel and Tatiana Broche at our sister church in Camajuani, Cuba, Uh, Pastor Patchy and his wife Marilyn in Havana, Cuba, Um, Robbie and Joyce Hammed as they serve uh, your kingdom in Beirut, Lebanon, and Monica and Benjamin Bailey as they serve in the Middle East to extend your grace in that place. And we just pray your blessing over all of those missions that we support, as well as the church planting efforts that are ongoing in Texas, in Katy, in Austin, in New Braunfels, and now in Dallas. And we just pray uh, your blessing over those young works, and we just ask that you would be with us now. Uh, as we open your word, speak to us by the presence and power of your Holy Spirit. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right. So we are in the midst of a series of messages that is looking at various accounts in the scriptures where there are women as the main characters around which the events occur, but whose names were not recorded in scripture. Uh, so we, we, we know the stories, but we don't know their names. And we've been using this as a way of sort of opening a window into uh, womanhood, into the way that God moves Uh, towards his people, and especially the way in which God values women, um, with the hopes that uh, all of the women who are part of this, uh, listening to this series, will feel edified and valued and strengthened, and as if you are part of this, which you are, part of this incredible sisterhood of the faith that has been uh, going on and being passed down for generations and generations that you would see yourself as part of this lineage, a part of this history. And that the men that are listening would, would see two things, both uh, ways to better value the women in their lives, and at the same time uh, to understand, as all of us who are listening would want to understand, the way that God moves toward all of his people, the way that his grace and his love are expressed and delivered to the hearts of his people. And so... We uh, come this morning to a passage in the Gospel of John that is most of the passages in chapter 8, um, and I've got to do a little bit of an introduction here. This is a little bit tricky, but don't panic. We're going to get through this. Um, so, in the past several decades... Archaeology has, well, really in the past hundred years, archaeology has uncovered, literally, 
uh, thousands and thousands of ancient manuscripts of the Bible, of the New Testament in particular, and well, the Old Testament as well. But all of these discoveries have given us a better picture of what the content was in some of the older portions of the Bible, or some of the older copies of the Bible. The reason I'm telling you this is the passage we're about to read probably did not appear in the Gospel of John the first time that John wrote it. Uh, And what happened was this is a story that, as you will see when we read it, it is so Jesus. This story is so fully, richly who Jesus is that it was preserved throughout the history of the early church. And throughout all these manuscripts that we now have access to, this, this passage is placed in five different locations. It's placed here in the Gospel of John in one copy tradition. It's placed at the end of the Gospel of John in another copy tradition. It's placed elsewhere in the Gospel of John, two other places, And then it's placed at the end of the Gospel of Luke in one copy tradition. So it's a little bit tricky to place the author of this passage. Um, And you will see in the text one of the reasons it's tricky to place. Uh, The the passage is actually, it's bracketed in your Bible. Whatever Bible you have at home or here should have little brackets around this passage. And it should simply say, this was not the original, we don't think, this is where this passage originally was recorded. We think it is Scripture. We, it's, it's, you'll see it is richly Jesus. Um, we just don't know where it came from. We don't know who the original author was. It was inserted mostly into the Gospel of John throughout various later copying traditions. And so that's where we find it. That's where it, that's where it landed. But it, it's sort of, just imagine this story sort of floating around, probably in written form, for a couple of centuries before it found its final resting place here at the beginning of John chapter 8. I realize it's a little weird. I want to reassure you that the Bible you have is reliable. It's good material. It's, it's, we have excellent understanding today of the archaeology and the history of these words, It's just this particular passage, we don't know where it started. We can't figure that out. None of the scholars have a a best guess. So, we're going to treat it as God's word because that's what it is, but we just have to say we we don't know where it's supposed to be written. Uh, And so it's been included in the Gospel of John. We're just going to deal with it uh, from this point forward. But you will see in the text... Uh, Jesus was with his followers, and the first portion of this passage says, they went each to his own house. That's chapter 7, verse 53. Well, that means that John, the author of this gospel, was not there when this story occurred, right? He was at home. He went home. Jesus went to Jerusalem, and he was by himself. He didn't have his followers with him, if we take that seriously. And so this story comes from somewhere other than John himself. And that's why one of the reasons it's in the text that we can say we don't know where it came from. All right. So I'm just going to read this whole passage, 
as it is bracketed in your Bible, and we will go from there. They went each to his own house, but Jesus went to the Mount of Olives. Early in the morning, he came again to the temple. All the people came to him, and he sat down and taught them. The scribes and the Pharisees brought a woman who had been caught in adultery, and placing her in the midst, they said to him, Teacher, this woman has been caught in the act of adultery. Now in the law, Moses commanded us to stone such women, so what do you say? This they said to test him, that they might have some charge to bring against him. Jesus bent down and wrote with his finger on the ground. And as they continued to ask him, he stood up and said to them, Let him who is without sin among you be the first to throw a stone at her. And once more, he bent down and wrote on the ground. But when they heard it, they went away one by one, beginning with the older ones. And Jesus was left alone with the woman standing before him. Jesus stood up and said to her, Woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? She said, No one, Lord. And Jesus said, Neither do I condemn you. Go, and from now on, sin no more. Can we just start with where's the guy? Where's the man? Hello? Takes two to tango. Where is he? Um, and of all the women that we've been studying, this one is really glad her name was not recorded. <laughs> um, just for the record. So, where do we begin? Um, Jesus at the temple, this is already hugely symbolic, right? He's at the place geographically where God resides, and he's there teaching as if he's a rabbi. Um, and people are gathered around him. And there is mounting resistance among the religious establishment to him being there, to him gathering a following, to him having people who are listening to him rather than to the established teachers and rulers and, and law interpreters of his religious background. And so they, they try to lay a trap. They try to wedge Jesus in between this idea of grace and the law. And by doing this, they're, they're hoping that if he condemns this woman to death, which was sort of allowable according to a, a very strict reading of Leviticus, um, that they would then be able to have him 
become, be made less popular for, you know, being in favor of an execution, or they would have him trapped with another whole school of interpretation. Um, there was, by the way, within the Jewish scriptures, a, a, a mechanism for this situation to where the penalty was, was death, but there was a mechanism for atonement at the temple where a person could come and make an offering and find forgiveness. They would not be executed. An animal would be executed on their behalf, on behalf of their sin. And so adultery was not an automatic death sentence. It was, it was serious, and it was um, set up in the law so that there was a mechanism by which a person could repent and establish forgiveness and be restored to the family of God. Um, however, they're laying this trap, and that's where I want to begin. And I, I, many of you know I, I'm a big Johnny Cash fan, and Johnny Cash has a song about Jesus that says, it's, the title is When the Man Comes to Town, right? Great song. And this is what I think of when I, when I hear that song or when I read this verse, I hear that song in my head. Like, the man, Jesus, is there at the temple. And this woman is brought to him, and he just totally owns the situation. He, he, he shows up in a way that is unique to his person, and he demonstrates who God is and what God's grace looks like lived out in real time. And so, when Jesus comes around, what should we expect? And I think that it begins with an expectation that we, should, we are to be tested. That when Jesus comes around, we can expect to be tested. He was tested. We will be tested. There is this, um, well we're to realize that we're in a battle that raging all around us in this world, and all you really need to do is just turn on the news, is the battle between good and evil. It's everywhere, right? It's daily, it's minute by minute, it's out there, and unfortunately it's right in here. This battle between good and evil. We need to know that we're in a battle to realize that in this battle, life and death are at stake. This woman realizes this. Jesus realizes this. She is brought to him. He knows what is at stake. She knows what is at stake. And we need to remember that evil will use and abuse people for its own end. So this woman, is, is, they're not really interested in justice. They're not really interested in her redemption or her atonement or her forgiveness or her restoration to the family of God. They are wickedly using her to entrap a teacher they don't like. Evil works this way. It uses and abuses people. And you can see it 
at work in the world. So to know that we're in a battle, to know that evil will use and abuse God's people, we also see that evil will use and abuse God's word. This group is is alluding to Leviticus 20, verse 10, where it says, The man and the woman shall both be put to death. So they, they cannot actually bring her to this judgment without the man, biblically speaking. They both have to be brought to this place of trial, if you will. And... So they're misusing God's word, they're setting a trap, they're manipulating God's word for their own end. And this is what evil does, this is how it works, this is the battle plan, if you will. Um, And not only do they only apply half of Leviticus 20 verse 10, they also fail to include the mechanism of atonement that would have been also part of the scriptures. So this is a misuse and abuse of God's word. That's how evil works. We're to know that we are in a battle. We're also to know that Jesus will win this battle. He's already won this battle. Among his dying words on the cross, he said, It is finished. The battle is over. Victory has been won. Good has prevailed. Grace has been established for God's people for eternity. And so we're to know that going in. We're to know, and and look at this. So this is one of those passages where body language is just screaming, right? So you've got these obnoxious manipulators of of the word trying to trap the teacher that they don't like and they bring him this woman, what does he do? He does a very uh, Near Eastern thing. I would do it, but I would fall over. He squats down, right? And he just starts doodling in the dirt. I would love to know when we get to glory, I would love to know what he wrote. Like That would be really cool to know. Um, I don't think we can from this vantage point, but it's a cool thought. And uh, there he is, just head down, finger in the dirt, whatever he's writing, drawing, who knows, right? But the key is, he is completely ignoring the person or the people who are bringing this woman to him to accuse her and entrap him. That puts him in the driver's seat of this interaction. Like they can't get to him if he doesn't acknowledge them. And so here he is, just calm. What's the word now? Is he chill? Is he chill? He's chill? Okay. And uh, this is really important. When someone comes to you with an offense, an injustice, a, a problem that they have been transgressed or something has been transgressed, what is the temptation to, to pick up 
that other person's offense and, and make it yours. Oh my gosh, I can't believe, and, and to sort of freak out with them, right? And Jesus just doesn't even look up. He's like, mm-hmm. Whatever. I'm not even going to give you the time of day. And then it, it, the text hints that they're badgering him. Um, verse 7, as they continued to ask him, or as they continually pressed him, as they just were grating on anybody else's nerves, then what does he do? He stands up. And this is important in, in one sense, um, in the ancient world, the person teaching, the person speaking, the person with authority when they spoke would stand. The king would, if he was sit, he or she, the, the, the monarch was sitting, the people listening would stand. If they had something to decree, they would stand up and deliver the decree, right? And, uh, so Jesus, here he is, he stands up. He doesn't pick up the offense, but he stands up, and he reminds us that we, in the midst of our testing, should maintain the faith that grace will prevail. This is an impossible position that this woman has been placed in and that Jesus has been placed in as he's being asked to be the judge of her destiny. It's, it's, a, it's a little bit of a pickle. And he just delivers grace. We are to know in the midst of the test that Jesus will win. We are in the middle of the battle between good and evil, but we're on the right side. Our Savior has prevailed. We should expect to be tested, and when Jesus shows up, we should expect to be humbled. So, the humility in this passage begins with this woman who is dragged before this crowd of people that Jesus is teaching. The shame, the guilt, the condemnation that she would have been feeling and then it shifts away from her to where the humility falls upon those who were making the accusation. It is quite masterful and beautifully recorded, I might add. But let me just try to distill down the takeaway here that we, as God's children, are to deal with our own sin first. So, there's a little verse in the Old Testament, in the book, the prophetic book of Amos, chapter 3, verse 2. This is roughly what it says. You only, among all the peoples of the earth, have I chosen as my own. Therefore, I will chastise you for your iniquity. So, that little verse tells us what's important to God. That it's not the sin that's out there that he's most concerned about. It's the sin that's within here that he's most concerned about. And it is so easy 
for us to, to yell and scream about the sin that's out there, that's in others, that is in that political party or that activist group or that whatever, right? To, to condemn others and to fail to look here first. You only have I chosen of all the peoples of the earth, therefore I will chastise you for your iniquity. That God is most interested in purging the sin from my heart, in my relationship with God, the sin that matters the most is the sin that's in my heart. And so we are to deal with our own sin first, and we see that demonstrated in this passage. Um, We should be more outraged by what's in our own hearts than we are by what's in the heart of those around us or the actions and behaviors of those around us. The problem is right here for each one of us. It's inside. We are to recognize that our sin places us in a position of equality at the foot of the cross. I'm no better or worse than anyone else in relation to my Savior. I need Jesus just as badly as anyone else. I need to render to him my own heart, open, bare, in confession. That's the first thing that needs to happen if there's going to be peace in this world. We are all equal at the foot of the cross under God's law. And as we are called to deal with our own sin first, you can, I love this story. And can you hear the thud as these rocks hit the ground? One by one. One by one. They drop their rocks. It doesn't say that. I'm making that part up. But the rocks hit the ground, and off they, off they go. May he who is among you, who has not sinned, cast the first stone. Ouch. That forces me to look here. It forces me to see the problem that lurks within. To listen for the thud. To follow the lead of Jesus, the one who is unmoved by the sin of others. This woman's sin, it's as if he's saying, I've already got this covered. I'm calm because her sin is already atoned for in my book. I'm going to deal with that on the cross. She is safe. She is forgiven. She is loved. She has a place. And I will establish that place. We're to follow his lead. And we're to follow the lead of the wise. Did you notice who dropped their rocks first? The older ones, the ones who'd been around that block a few times, who understood the severity of their own heart and the problem that lurked within. Jesus brings with him humility. 
he brings with him the expectation that our faith will be tested, and he brings with him the expectation that we will find humility when we are in his presence. Because really and truly, if I'm honest about what's in here, I have no basis for considering myself better than any other human being. We are truly equal there before the law of God. Guilty, all. And so, when Jesus comes around, we have these expectations. And the last one that I want us to see in this passage is the expectation to be forgiven. Jesus himself has stood up for you. Whatever the accusations were, whatever those feelings of guilt and shame were that came with it, he's dealt with it. He was calm, cool, and collected, and he went to the cross with your name before him, knowing that his work was to atone, to forgive, to bring the truth of God's grace to bear on your heart. It is no accident that this incident occurs at the temple, within striking distance of the altar of God, within reach of the Holy of Holies, the place where God rests on earth, Jesus stands there and stands up for this woman, for all women, for all people. He has chosen to value you. You Think about how easy it would have been for Jesus to use this woman for his own ends. Right? He could have gone any number of directions here. And when it's over, the text says it's just the two of them, but I imagine the the crowd that had gathered to hear him was still there. The people that left were the the ones bringing accusations. They're the ones who turned and left one by one, starting with the older ones. And so there he is, still kneeling, still doodling or whatever he's doing, and he looks up. He says, oh, where did they go, sister? It's like, they're gone. It's like, yep, they're gone. No one is there to condemn you, nor shall I. Jesus chose to value her. He has chosen to value you. And because of that, no one can condemn you. Jesus has stood up for you, and Jesus has died for you. That he knew during this interaction what he was going to do for her, ultimately. That he was going to the cross with her name written on his hand. Her actual name 
that's not recorded here. He took that to the cross with him. Jesus has died for you. He has taken away your sin. He can honestly say, go and sin no more, which is baffling, right? Like, um, excuse me? Going what? <laughs> wait, wait, what? I'm not just good at sinning. I'm a natural, right? You probably are too. Go and sin no more. The only basis upon which he can say that is if he knows that he will make a final and complete atonement for our sin. In Christ, we are going and sinning no more. It doesn't mean we're going to be perfect in this life. It means we're covered, we're forgiven, we're loved, we're whole in Him. He has taken away your sin, and no one can take that away from you. And that statement of no one, guess who that includes? You, yourself. You cannot undo what Christ has done for you. Your doubt, your fear, your sin, your guilt, your shame, none of it. He has taken it. You are forgiven. You are free to go forth in his love and because of him, sin no more. He has conquered our sin. He's conquered the grave. So, here's what I'm going to do. I'm just going to demonstrate through reading a few other scriptures how Jesus this passage is. Okay? So we're just going to bounce through some other passages real quick. John 15, 20. Remember the word that I said to you, Jesus is speaking. A servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they kept my word, they will keep also yours. Um, expect to be tested when Jesus comes around. Expect to be tested. Psalm 32, 5. I acknowledged my sin to you. I did not cover my iniquity. I said I will confess my transgressions to the Lord and you forgave the iniquity of my sin. Expect to be humbled. When Jesus comes around, when he shows up in your heart, expect a response that brings you to a place of humility, of acknowledgement, of confession. Romans 8.1 There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Yes. Give me some more of that. Anyone? Anyone want to do it? No, I mean, actually, quote it. Say it. Therefore. I need to staple that one to my forehead. Right? There is, therefore, now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus.
this woman in this story, she didn't need that memory verse. That truth was delivered directly to her heart. She left that interaction knowing, because Jesus said it, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Matthew five seventeen, Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. Jesus isn't excusing this woman's sin. He's atoning for it. He is forgiving her on the basis of his blood. He fulfilled the law, and he offered his sinless blood on our behalf, that we might be forgiven. Romans eight thirty-three through the first portion of verse 35. Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised. Who is at the right hand of God. Who indeed is interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? There's an amen in there somewhere. That nothing can separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus. Nothing. We are reminded how very, very Jesus this story is. As we reflect on our own hearts, God's Word, and the very heart of God Himself that always projects grace, forgiveness, redemption, wholeness, hope, life, love, and light to His people. This is our God. This is the God who stands up for us. Will you pray with me? God our Father, we thank you that your Son came around that he came into this world not to condemn the world, but to redeem a people for himself. To reverse the pattern of sin and darkness in this world. To burst onto the scene with light and hope and love. Father, help us to live from that place that place of strength, that place of faith, that place of knowing that while we will be tested, that through the humility that comes at the foot of your cross, our hearts will be lifted and we will know that we are forgiven, that your love has redefined who we are, not just now, but forever. Help us to live out of that strength, that truth, that grace. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.